Awesome. Let me ask you all to give another round of applause to Jennifer Cochran who put that video together. Yeah, so awesome. I just want to say anybody in this room is invited to come check out House Group. Like there's not, you don't, age is just an age, you know, it doesn't matter. And obviously your singing voice is not a requirement either. (laughs) Um, Yeah. One time we had all of our worship leaders come together. There's probably 20 of them and they had like a meeting and we had worship at the beginning of that. That sounded like angels, you know. I mean, I'm sure it all does to God. So um. anyways, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. So I now release you to greet one another with a holy kiss. Just pucker up. (laughs) Some people are actually kissing. We're not that kind of church. Or are we? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Super Bowl was last Sunday. Any Broncos fans in here? Okay. Panthers? (laughs) Yeah, we lost. How about non-football fans? Is that a good thing or a bad thing that that was the loudest cheer out of all of ours? (laughs) That's a good thing. Right. Okay. So, who loves Jesus? (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. My name is Luke Hazelmeyer, and um, this message that I want to share with you is something that's been stirring in my heart for a while. And here's why. Raise your hand if you are new to this church in the last two years. Isn't that crazy? Okay. I always forget how much the 1115 service likes clapping. It's kind of (laughs) like... You know, we have a house group that is like that too. The Corian house group, you cannot get them to stop clapping. They're the ones clapping right now, just in case you didn't know. Um, John, will you stand up? He wasn't able to make it in earlier because of another ministry responsibility, but this is our, si- our sixth intern. Let's give him a round of applause, too. Okay, so, message. Um, <laughs> a lot of new people here, and we all come from a lot of different backgrounds, don't we? Like, any of you, raise your hand if you're from a more traditional church background before this? Okay, cool. How about no church background? This is like your first experience with church. Okay, number of people. Um, And so there are a lot of just different ways that we were taught to view things um, that we have in our minds from our past. And now we're all together as one big family. And so like any other family, there's going to be some dysfunction. There's going to be some conflict, some differing beliefs. And, uh, you know, that's a, a, large, a, a large reason for that is because of all of these different backgrounds we've had. And so I think that it's good for us to every once in a while take a second to top, talk about a topic where we can all unify around something despite kind of what we were trained to believe earlier on in our Christian experience. So I just want to talk about a topic that, um, that yeah, it's really important. And so before we do that, let's pray. Now, it's Valentine's Day, so I kind of got this from another guy, but if there's someone in the room you'd like to date, 
during the prayer, I'm going to have you open your eyes and make eye contact with them. Okay? (laughs) If they make eye contact back with you, that means you get to date, you know? And so you can, uh, if you're single, of course, if you're single, let's be clear. All right? Um, You'll invalidate your prayer because your eyes will be open, but it'll be worth it, you know? (laughs) Some of you got that. All right, so let's pray, you know, get ready, okay? (laughs) So Father, thank you so much for all these people in here. Thank you for uh, the matchmaking you're about to do right now. (laughs) Come on to that, yeah, that's a good word. We love you. Please bless this message in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so got some couples now. Meet up after church. All right, get your exchange numbers. All right, turn to Titus 2 with me. We're going to read a passage. Apostle Paul is talking to one of his disciples. And I think this is a word for us as a body. So, 11 through 14. Here we go. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, And purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. And in the present age, live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. What we first read from this is that it is the grace of God which trains us to live in a righteous way. Some people call that holiness. Anyone ever been a part of a holiness church before? Just out of curiosity. Okay, a couple. Holiness, living out in such a way that is in line with how Jesus lived and how he would live. Having the character of God, being set apart from the world. That's kind of what a lot of people mean when they think of holiness. And so we have the grace of God on one hand, training us to... You know, if we sum it all up, live out a holy lifestyle. Now, I don't know about all of you, but those two things can tend to be in tension sometime, can't they? Grace and holiness, you know? Like, some people, they might read this passage and be like, Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions in the present age of lives are self-controlled, upright, and godly. Other people might read it like this. Titus 2, 11-13. The grace of God has appeared, bringing us salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. To live in a, yeah, <laughs> to live in a godly way. Some of you are like, I don't understand what you're doing right now. <laughs> okay, if you didn't get that, basically... Some people will tend to emphasize the grace part, you know, and they don't ever really think about their character or 
how they are acting or behaving. It's just all about grace. You might have other people who tend to emphasize the holiness part or the righteous living part where it's like, um, we have to be a people set apart. We have to look different from everyone else. We have to be ruthless about sin in our life. So question, which way is right? Answer is yes, right? We want both of those things. Um, We want to understand that it is the grace of God in us, his love for us, our identity as new creations with no condemnation, sons and daughters, our sin having been buried, never to have power over us again. We want that truth. We also want the truth that any sinful mindsets still left up there, we got to be ruthless about weeding those out. Because that, all that does is hinder our effectiveness in advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. But there's a tension. You know? And so what I want to talk about is how do we navigate through that tension? You know, some of you may have come from a church tradition where they were more grace-oriented. Maybe some of you came from one that was more holiness-oriented. But the point is, there are some things that are black and white, but there are a lot of things that are gray, aren't there? So a lot of things that are gray. So how do we navigate through the, the gray areas of living out a life for Jesus? Okay. So we're going to talk about that. But before I dive into this, I want to make something clear that there are some things where there's no tension. It's either simply wrong to do or it's something that we absolutely cannot do based on our performance or our actions or our righteous deeds. Okay. For example, some things that we simply, that's all that are always wrong. Let's read Galatians five verses 19 through 21. These are things that we, they're not, are not gray. These are black and white. Okay. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Okay. So there isn't grace for us to do those things. Now don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we don't receive grace for when we had done those things, or if we ever do them in the future, we definitely did receive grace and receive forgiveness. And it says in Hebrews that God remembers our sins no more, meaning he chooses to forget them. When he looks at you, even after you've sinned, he doesn't even see the sins on you. That's amazing. Um, But, so that's, that's not what I mean. Of course, we've all received grace from those things. But when I say we don't have grace to do those things, what I mean is that there's never a situation where we have permission from God to be jealous or to commit sexual immorality or adultery. You know, those things are always wrong. It's black and white. Okay. Some other things that are not, are not intention. These are not things that I'm talking about are salvation. No amount of righteous living will ever get us salvation. We only get salvation by faith in Christ alone as a free gift from God. It's not intention. The love of God. You know, we cannot earn the love of God. In a covenant relationship, as opposed to a contractual relationship where one party gives 50%, 
the other party gets 50%. And it's kind of like, if I do my part, then you'll do your part. But if I don't do my part, you won't do your part. Contrasting from that is a covenant relationship, which we have with God, where he always gives his 100% and we always give our 100%. And there's nothing that we can do you know, even when we are giving him all hundred or if we're giving him zero, his hundred is still coming our way. That's the way that a covenant relationship works. Um, so no amount of holy living can increase God's love for us. Also, the power of God and the gifts of the spirit. You know, it's not like every time I do a good deed, I've got like a power level barometer and it's like, it goes up a level. Okay, I, I uh, fed an orphan. Until I can get up here and then I can, then I can really pray for someone to be healed, you know? No, the power of God is freely given due to his word. And if you read through the Bible, you will find tons of people who were pretty messed up, yet released immense amounts of power. God chose them to do that. Um, and even, you know, you, oftentimes you hear about these people with really powerful ministries and then it comes out that they were in an adulterous relationship or having an affair or something. And a lot of people tend to believe, oh, well, I guess it was all fake. But really what I think is that they had the power of God because God doesn't deny his word that the power of the Holy Spirit will be with those who are children of God. But they neglected their character and then it all fell apart for them. So, those things are not what I'm talking about right now. Um, and the things I'm talking about, they're more so in between the tension. They're things that are they're gray. They could go one way or another. And here's why I think there are items that are in tension. Here's what I believe. If you look at the meaning of the word grace, it literally translates, the Greek word like charas or something, it translates to favor. Grace simply means favor. Any of you ever heard before that grace is unmerited or undeserved favor? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, in the case of salvation, when we were sinners and alienated from God and he redeemed us and reconciled us, that was was unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. But grace in the Bible does not only mean unmerited favor. God, the uh, biblical authors actually use the term grace to refer to a lot of other things. Like the gifts of the spirit, the word gift comes from the root word um, grace, which means favor. And so when you have the favor of God on a person or on a bunch of people, what ends up happening is that the, me, the end result, the reason why God is putting the favor on us is for the same end or the same purpose, but the means to actually get there are different. Let me unpack that. So when it comes to salvation, the purpose of the, of God's grace for us in salvation is to restore all of us to relationship. We all have the same end. All of us because of God's grace result in the same thing, but our path there is very different. You know, when the grace of God gets released to us, all of us have different stories and different sins that got forgiven on the way to that restoration. Also, if you think about the gifts of the spirit, okay, um, God's favor may be on one person for healing 
in a particular situation, maybe on another person for prophecy, maybe on another person for discernment. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the purpose of the gifts, the ultimate end is to edify the body, is to build up the body of believers. So the favor of God looks different on every single person. The grace of God looks different on every single person, but it results in the same thing. Are you guys with me on that? Okay. I know that's kind of wordy. So that's why we have items in tension because everyone's grace paved path looks different. Okay. I'm going to come back to that, but let me list off some of the items that I do think are intention, some specific things. Okay. So first one would be social media. Okay. Facebook. Some people, I mean, I've talked to people before who every time they post a status or post a picture, they're just like hoping for lots of people to like it and lots of people to comment on it and to get lots of activity because that makes them feel valuable themselves That gives them a sense of self-worth. And so what they're doing is they're getting value from people rather than from God. For that person, it's not wise to spend a lot of time on social media. Because it leads them into idolatry. That's That's idolatry. On the other hand, you may have someone who runs a ministry on Facebook, like a blog, or maybe they share testimonies. There could be people getting saved. There probably are people getting saved over Facebook ministries. Also, there are some people who just use Facebook, and it's not for some evil motivation, maybe not for some not like noble cause. So like, is it, what is it? Is it right or wrong to use Facebook? You know? Another thing in tension could be movies and TV shows. You know, maybe people sometimes will ask me like, Luke, how can you watch The Walking Dead? And I'm like, huh? With a box of Cheez-Its and a glass of lemonade, big screen TV that my roommate got for me. Um, that's tongue in cheek. But like, how can you like watch all of that violence? You know, what's the right answer there? Because if if for some people, if watching violence on TV causes them to want to be violent with the people around them or causes anger to rise up in them, like, should they watch violent TV shows? Probably not, right? What about other people who it doesn't affect that way? Not to mention the fact that the Bible is way more violent than The Walking Dead. (laughs) You read through the Old Testament, if if you're uh, sensitive to violence... You will no longer be. <laughs> so, so yeah, what's third one? Maybe alcohol and tobacco. You know, obviously drunkenness is a sin. That's a black and white issue. But what about having one drink? For some people, one beer causes them to go on a one track mindset for the rest of the night to drink as much as they possibly can. So is it wise for them to drink one beer? Probably not. For other people, they can drink one beer or two beers and be fine. And it doesn't cause, that kind of effect doesn't happen in them. They just like the taste of it. So what's the right thing to do? Should anyone drink beer? Or tobacco, you know? Some people struggle with cigarette addiction. Some don't. 
Some can smoke one cigarette and then not smoke again for three weeks. Others smoke one and then they go buy a pack and smoke the whole thing by the next day. Last one I want to share. Um, this is for all you non-marrieds. Boundaries for non-married couples. You know, some couples, if they are alone together and no one else is around, they will most often fall into sexual sin. So is it wise for them to spend time alone? Probably not. But does that mean that for everyone else, the only way that we can date in line with holiness is to not ever be alone until we're married? Like, what if there's a couple that doesn't, that does, they don't struggle with that? Like, what do they do? So there's all, that we could go through many more. There's all these things that are in tension. And we all probably have different opinions. As many people that are in here, there's probably that many opinions on all those topics that I just shared. But what I want to do now is talk about how do we navigate through that tension? Because we're one big family now. And you know, we're the church. We're not at church. We are the church. And if we're going to go out into the community and bring heaven to earth in Cincinnati, there's some stuff we got to be on the same page about. Okay. One thing's for sure. Legalism is not an option at this church. Okay. We can never be so focused on what to do and what not to do that we choke the life that God is trying to release to us. It's never been about what to do and what not to do. It's always been about the life of Jesus, the life of God being released to us. By the same, on the same uh, coin, we cannot abuse the grace of God. We absolutely cannot neglect our character for the sake of power ministry or presence. If we do that, we are building something without a foundation. Eventually, it will crumble. So we have to have both. So, now to talk about how do we navigate these items of tension. Turn with me to Mark 7. A little bit of context on this. Jesus, in this passage earlier, refers to something called the tradition of the elders. Um, Let me explain what that is real quick. How many of you know how many laws and commandments there are in um, the Torah? 613, I heard someone say. Um, If you ever do Bible trivia, get that person with you. (laughs) Um, Another question. Well, since then, between when the last book of the Old Testament was written, Malachi, and Jesus' time, a lot of laws were added in, which was named the Oral Torah, And a lot of these laws were added in to help the Jewish people accomplish living out the law. Any of you know how many laws were added in? 6,200 pages of laws. Can you imagine? That's like 20,000 laws, you know? And they're like, as petty as don't mix these two kinds of cloths, you know, um, don't eat this kind of seafood. Like, can you imagine trying to 
follow all those things. Yet the Pharisees were teaching that not only the 613, but also the 6,200, if you didn't follow those, you were defiling yourself. And Jesus is here to correct that way of thinking in Mark 7. So let's read Mark 7, 14 and 15. 14. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. Then verses 20 through 23, 20. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles for it is from within, from the human heart that evil intentions come. Fornification, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So what does this mean? This means that it is not about what we consume or what we intake. It's not about how many beers we drink. It's not about how many cigarettes or how often we use social media. It's about what is coming out of us as a result of that. Like when I drink two beers, what do I see coming out of me? Is there anything nasty? Is there anything ugly that I see coming out of me as a result of that? If so, it's not wise. I don't have the freedom to do that. Same thing with social media. As I'm using Facebook, what do I see coming out of me as a result of that? Do I see insecurity? Do I see longing for attention? Do I see longing for approval? If so, then I probably shouldn't use Facebook. It's not the wise thing to do. So what this means for us is that we have to be consistently and continually evaluating the boundaries we've set up. You know, some of you have been struggling with something, some kind of having some kind of sin issue for a while. And you're wondering like, what is it that is causing me to struggle with this? You know, there could be guys in here that are struggling with pornography. And the question I'd ask is like, are you watching lots of movies with sex scenes in them? Are you on Facebook constantly looking at pictures of girls? Maybe they're not naked, but do you think that is helping you in any way with that sin struggle? You know, for those people, not, I, mean, I mean, sex scenes is, is, in my opinion, a black and white issue. But you get the point that I'm making. That like, what am I intaking that is causing me to struggle with this? And then I got to set stricter boundaries for myself until I get free. What this also means is that one set in stone list of rules will not work. You know, it's not like if we as a church would be like, all right, everyone. So everybody can drink one beer per week. You can smoke two cigarettes per month. Facebook, you got about 17 and a half minutes per day. Um, If you're not married, you can be alone, but you have to have someone on FaceTime watching you. (laughs) You know, a list of rules like that won't work. Why? Because it's not about what is coming in, but what's coming out. And we're powerful people, right? It's not the church leadership's responsibility to keep us living a holy lifestyle. It's ours. Okay. And we believe that the gospel changes people. Like, it's not like people come, experience Jesus, 
and then all of their, they just are the exact same person. No, we believe that people are actually changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can trust and assume and expect that they are going to be living out that grace, which remember, trains us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. Like we can have confidence in that. We shouldn't ever expect people to fail. People are going to fail, but it shouldn't be what we expect. So we can't have a list of rules either. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2.23, all these matters, he's referring to a bunch of rules that the the, um, church members in Colossae were following. All these matters are they... These matters are sure to have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Rules in and of themselves do not keep us pure. They don't address the sinful desires that are there. Only mind renewal can do that. So if you're, if you're single right now, or if you're dating, like, and you want to have purity in your relationship, setting a bunch of boundaries is not enough. You have to make a decision, a core decision. I'm going to be committed to renewing my mind and allowing the Holy Spirit to change my way of thinking. Boundaries can help, but they can't be the only plan or you'll fail. You might fail. So, um, last thing I want to point out. Easy enough for us to talk about this standard that it's up to every individual that we are powerful and that we have to determine what our freedom is when we're alone. But what about when we all come together? This is where stuff gets um, enjoyably complicated, okay? Delightfully messy, I think is what I was trying to say. Um, So say we have a church-like picnic at the park, you know? You have some people there who are recovering alcoholics. They can't drink any alcohol. They know that. Other people there who really like beer. What do we do? Do we have alcohol or do we have no alcohol? You know? Is anyone allowed to smoke there? Or do you have to walk like 100 yards away from everyone else to smoke? Do you have to hide behind a tree? You know? Like, what do we do when we all come together? Do we all lower our, does every person at the gathering lower their freedom to the least free person that's there? Honestly, what I think is that if, you are, if anyone is struggling with alcoholism or any kind of addiction, they're going to be exposed to it again at some, in some part of their life. They're going to go to restaurants where alcohol is being served. They're going to hang out with non-Christian friends who are drinking. It's going to happen. So rather than create a sterile environment where they don't learn to overcome it with all the body of believers, what if we while not lowering, our, like not lowering our freedom together to the lowest person, built them up, encouraged them, called them out while we were together if they were going past their level of freedom. Like, wouldn't that be better? So, um, anyways, let's read one more passage about what to do when we all come together, okay? That's what that's point. Wow. Romans 14. Verses 1 through 4, here we go, verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating everything, anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. 
Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So, in this church in Rome, some believers felt like, if I eat meat, I'm going to fall into gluttony. If I eat meat, I'm going to revert back to my old ways of living. If I eat meat, all this stuff's going to happen. I can't eat meat. Others were like, I love meat. You know, if God wants us to be vegetarians, why do you make meat taste so good? That's my question. <laughs> Just kidding. If you're a vegetarian, this is not, he's not talking about, being a vegetarian is fine. It's totally cool. It's okay. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a religious practice of not eating meat. He says, for those that can eat it, eat. But don't, don't despise, don't get bitter and resentful towards those who aren't eating because you feel insecure about your choice being around them. On the flip side, those who don't feel like they have the freedom to eat, great, don't eat. But don't judge the people that do. Because it is before our own Lord, that we stand and fall. Every single one of us, we don't stand before each other, ultimately. We stand before God. And he's the one who will show us what holiness looks like for us. There's not one golden standard that we should all follow. Holiness is different for each one of us because his grace has been poured out on us in different ways. That's just how grace works. Now, there is a passage later on in Romans 14 where Paul says, If you are injuring your brother and sister by what you're eating, you are no longer walking in love. So we have to be mindful and intentional and considerate of people that have less freedom than we do. Don't hear me saying that we should disregard everyone's struggles and not think about it at all. We need to be thinking about it. But ultimately, it's not someone else's problem with alcohol is not my problem. It's their problem. And they have to deal with it before God. I can assist them. I can't do it for them. So, four, let's go over four practical ways that we can actually live this stuff out. Okay? First one. Self-reflect constantly about personal sin struggles and then evaluate your boundaries. If you want to pursue holiness, if you're serious about this Jesus thing, then you have to, you know, if not every day, every week, be like, okay, what am I struggling with? What are things that I'm doing that might be contributing to this? How can I change my boundaries in order to live out like Christ more? Second thing, find your security in Jesus, not in your boundaries. This is hard. A lot of people, they know exactly what they do and exactly what they don't do, and that gives them a sense of security. You know, But if that's the case then anyone else's boundaries who look different than yours is going to make you feel insecure. And at, and yeah, that's just not a good place to be. Third, assume that other people are actively engaged in this reflection and evaluation. It's easy to look around and be like, man, these people are not taking this seriously at all. That person over there, I can't believe they're drinking a beer and I've seen them do that before. We can't get into that kind of a mentality. We have to assume the best in people, not assume the worst. That's the way to honor. Dishonoring is, is, is to assume the worst. We've got to assume the best. Last, refrain from imposing your boundaries on other people. 
This is hard. Because sometimes I see people making a decision that I do not think is wise. And I just want to be like, that's sin. That's wrong. No, it's not. And you know what? It may be unwise for them. But they have to come to that themselves. It's not my job to police everybody's personal freedom level and decide for every single person how free or how unfree they are. And this is just the, this is the messiness of grace. It looks different for everyone. And it should end in the same thing. It should end in all of us pursuing righteous living, a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly. But let's not expect everyone else's journey there to look just like ours. Let's have grace for people and mercy for people and believe the best in people. I think if we do that, we will come together as a family even stronger and even more united than before. Okay? So I'm going to invite the worship band to come out. Let's pray one last time. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. And God, we just declare together that we want to be a people set apart for you. We want to be people that are known for our godly living and for honoring each other. So give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Thanks, guys.